0: För sändinga en kort meddelning från oss här i Avisa. Avison var det att ge dig tanker tankar idag som slagord vårt tip. Eh, si. Vi lätta att det svarar om du sövna in forskning, kultur, politik och idédebatt. Och när du abonnerar på Avisa så får du morgonbladet på papper varje fredag och du får oss på nät ensdag. Och nu får du upp till 40 % rabatt på ett abonnemang. Om du går in på mornblåe.no, det är anbefalade virkelig. Nu till sendingen.
1: Whiteness as an ideology attempts to try and convince us that to be white is the default and normal, and people who are not white are the ones who should
0: be named. är feminister seg til patriarkatet? Det är torsdag och kulturpodcast. Journalist Reni Edulodge var frustrerad. Hur mente rasismedebatten i Storbritannien var kontrollert av dem som ikke känner rasismen på kroppen selv, hvite mennesker. Det sinne blev først et blogginnlegg i 2014 og så den omdiskuterte boka «Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Racism» på norsk «Hvorfor jeg ikke lenger snakker med vita människor om rase». Hur var nylig en tur inom Norge, hvor du deltok i en samtale for en stafffull sal på litteraturhuset i Oslo, sammen med mombrights-baltist Sumaya Girda Ali. Vi hoppe in i samtalen på et tidspunkt hvor Sumaya utfordrer Edelodge på den provoserende titeln på boka hennes.
2: I remember when I first saw your book, I actually bought it here in Oslo from Trunsmo, this really cool bookstore. Oh, fabulous. Uh, It's a really, really cool bookstore. Uh, My favorite, actually. Um, And I actually, I bought it from there, and I put it on Instagram. And immediately after, I got a a message from a friend of mine. She said, are you racist? Wow. And this was a friend? A friend. (laughs) (laughs) It was a friend. Uh, And then, in fact, actually, early... And that was like... um, uh, early last year, but now in February, when me and um, Morgan Blader were announcing that you are coming to Norway that we're going to have this conversation, I put it up and I announced it. And even then, on my Facebook page, someone asked me, "Isn't this title racist against oh. white people?" Interesting. <laughs> and and I and, I'm, and I. I'm not going to answer the ignorant uh, premises that, uh, that are being laid out, but I'm going to say that the title is indeed provocative and hard to ignore. And, and I just want to ask you if you have any thoughts uh, onto as to how the title may hinder or bring to a halt the conversation that the book in general is trying to like, invite you in.
1: I see, hindering or bringing to a halt. Well, yeah, I because now I have
2: to, like, when when my friends, like, when people, when I talk, when I show the book, people and people come up to me and say, "Isn't this racist?" I have to have a conversation where I have to say, "No, it's not racist." Instead of having the, a conversation about the content.
1: I see, and here we are discussing that. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, here we are. Like, there's quite a few people in this room, and this doesn't. Suggests to me a shutting down of conversation. It s- mm, suggests to me a, quite a bit of curiosity and um, an interest in the subject matter of structural racism. Um, and I've, but I, I mean, what, I would say about,
2: that. What about the people who um, aren't already interested or uh-huh, right. and they st- feel
1: threatened because of the words "white people"? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean,
1: I would say that it's certainly they, they do. <laughs> yes, which is a. <laughs> in my opinion, a benign descriptor. Mm. Um, benign in that I'm not actually making any value judgments. Mm. I, you know, I'm somebody who works with words. And so obviously lots of people have come to me concerned and worried about the title since it was published about 18, 19 months ago mm. um, in the English language. And uh, people have um, said exactly those concerns. I'm worried that people are not going to want to be interested in this, I'm concerned that, you know, it might offend white people, et etc. et cetera. But the literal facts of the book's tra- trajectory in the world um, essentially flies in the face of that concern. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was on the um, Sunday Times bestseller list f- for six months consistently, and it's won three awards, and mm. I am ha- in the incredibly lucky position to be able to essentially travel the world talking about the issues in the book. And that doesn't sound like shutting down discussion to me. Mm. Um, but more broadly, like, let's go into the, like the literal like etymology of every word on that front cover and talk about why some white people might find it threatening um, and what I actually wrote. Mm. And I think I was speaking to another writer about this actually the other day and he said something very interesting, which is that... Um, Conversations about ra- racism in the public sphere um, are ripe for a situation that happens between writers and readers a lot, which is that, you know, writers write what they want and then readers come to it with a lot of cultural baggage and assumptions and um, sometimes fears, sometimes worries, sometimes projections. Um, those projections can be good or bad. And I think that, like, we're in a sort of interesting position in the European continent at the moment, in which um, we have not really had many bold anti-racist statements in public for a long time. And anti-racism has dealt with a type of mischaracterization. I think, from basically from American conversations in which um, I think white people who never really have um, their whiteness called into question, and when I say their whiteness, I mean being in a powerful political position mm. um, because I personally think that this book deals with whiteness with, with a capital W as an ideology in the same way that I, a feminist, would critique patriarchy mm. or capitalism, let's say. Um, but it, much like patriarchy, I would say that whiteness as a political ideology, we've been convinced that it is natural and normal and that Um, public conversations in which we argue about the inferiority of people who are not white are absolutely normal and should not be criticised. And I think, you know, as somebody who comes from a background of feminist politics, I absolutely see parallels with the ways in which we are socialised to believe that gender difference is normal and not fundamentally social categories that attempt to try and uh, justify the belief that women are inferior, right? Mm. So I think I am a person writing along saying, okay, I can see that this is actually an ideology. It's not just about individual people. Mm. It's about an ideology with beliefs um, that we can critique. Um, And so we look at the words on the title and... um, maybe I could have said, you know, whiteness as an ideology on the title, but I feel like that would be a bit long. Mm. Um, <laughs> we look at the title, and I personally think that the book says everything about me drawing a boundary, mm. and literally nothing about what I particularly think of white people. Um, the, words, the, the first word of the title is why. That suggests an explanation. And if I didn't want to explain, and if I didn't feel inclined to explain, I wouldn't have put the word why at, right at the beginning. Mm. Um, and I also think that whiteness as an ideology c- attempts to try and convince us that to be white is the default and normal, and people who are not white are the ones who should be named. Um, so if you are not white, you're very used to being pointed out as, oh yeah, the black girl over there, mm. um, and white people are just the girl. Mm. Um, and what this title absolutely does is de that, Um, presumption presumption that I think that we are all very um, aware of. Um, That presumption that white people are normal, objective, neutral. And if you are not white, you are to be described, you are subjective. Um, And this title flies in the face of that. And I think that that could be quite threatening for some people. Mm. Um, Because ultimately, in that descriptor that's in the title... I don't think there's anything particularly presumptuous about what I think white people are or are not like. Um, and neither does I, do I think it particularly generalises. I mean, it doesn't say white people are X, Y, Z. It says why I, me speaking on my personal behalf, um, I'm no longer t- talking to white people about race. Pick up the book. In the first five pages, you're like, oh, OK, here's her explanation (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is i can no longer deal with the the wilderness and the defensiveness and the denial and the hostility Mm. and the first line of that um initial essay is i'm not no longer talking to white people about race not all white people just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms i mean there's literally your answer Mm. um i cannot mitigate my self-expression and my writing and my work. I cannot censor myself for fear of um, offending an imaginary white person somewhere in my head who's saying, better tone it down, you know. Mm. I think that that would be a real um, betrayal of myself and my self-expression. Um, and and I think that there's, uh, there's something very interesting and even political happening in that opposition, mm. particularly when that opposition tends to mirror most of the behaviours that I speak about in that initial blog post. Um, And I just want people to be, like, incredibly aware of that. You know, me setting a personal boundary in which, you know, and particularly in that original blog post, I worked very hard to try and describe a number of different behaviours that I kept coming up against, particularly when I was involved in progressive activism again and again and again, Um, And I personally feel like if you don't do those behaviors, then you're not going to feel attacked. Mm. Um, uh, I think that that's very different from me making a assertion about what I think, you know, white people as a group are or aren't. Um, And I think that there's some cultural baggage here where some people feel threatened and they see the title. And instead of reading what it actually says, they think it says death to the, the white man <laughs> like kill whitey <laughs> uh, and, and other like far more extreme statements yes
2: because this, like the great answer, like you can clap for that
1: oh well, thanks
2: <laughs> because as you explained I think like on, the, on my Facebook page the guy who asked if it wasn't racist to say that I'm not talking to white people about this he said that just switch out the word white with black, I and see. everyone would see what I mean. And so that's
1: not actually what it says. It, it's not. <laughs> and, and
2: I think I think I think your opponents or people who don't who who feel threatened by this title, I think they think on an individual level, while you while while you're speaking from a political and structural level. For like you're you're like an eagle flying above, and they're like just looking, oh, taking it um, as a personal um, threat or something. I don't know, people get defensive.
1: Mm, but I want to be clear that, you know, I'm not a politician or somebody who's attempting to try and legislate or make policy about anyone's life. I'm mm. a writer, and you don't actually have to read the book if you don't want to. Mm. Like. <laughs> Simple,
2: problem solved. Yeah,
1: um, yeah I think it's, it's interesting. Like Whilst I've been in this area of the world, it's something that's come up repeatedly, and it's not something that I've um, uh, received much um, distress about in the UK. Mm. I think in the UK I was met with um, curiosity as to, oh, why would she take this position, um, rather than um, extreme hostility and defensiveness. Um, at least that's what people keep reporting to me while I'm here.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think I don't think um, like here in like as you say, like the context where where do these conversations where, where where are we having them? It is obviously mm. important, and especially here. Like Norway is a small country, 5 million, 5.2 million citizens. And we, well, like when we speak about racism, like I personally believe as an anti racist that we don't have a language mm. to speak about racism in the public. And we're not so very accustomed, like in, in the UK, you guys talk about whites and blacks, while we in Norway, we're not supposed to talk about whites and blacks, we're supposed to say minority and majority. I mm. said, I actually once said white men. On the television, and I actually it uh, was with a politician, and I got death threats. Wow! For saying white. I just think men. that's so
1: interesting because again, if you grow up racialized, you're very used to being described as, as... your race first and foremost mm. because um, you don't enjoy the benefit or the privilege essentially of being seen as neutral, objective, and the norm. And that's really what I'm attempting to try and I think disrupt with this book and. And with that title, Um, Mm. and I'm somebody who's always been referred to as the black girl, and I've never taken offense of it because I am black, just like I'm five foot five, you know, and um, it's literally just a descriptor. Well, I'm actually five foot six, but it's literally just a descriptor. And And I wonder why white people feel so threatened by a a descriptor of like the colour of their skin maybe and because they're not used to it not used to being not seen as neutral and the person by, by which everybody else is defined against I think that might be it but yeah. that's my guess I don't I'm know into. you'd have to ask somebody who feels deeply opposed mm. and like we've spoken a lot about the title fine 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 but The reason why I wrote that initial blog post in the first place, which was essentially me kind of making a promise to myself and drawing a personal boundary, was because I was deeply emotionally exhausted by the white people who I was working with um, on, like, progressive issues, particularly to do with feminism, who, um, whenever I attempted to try and talk about racism and how it was affecting me as a black woman and also call attention to swathes of data to do with racism and how it was... um, Part of our world, and how the feminist movement probably wasn't going to be immune from that. I was met by white women, in particular in the feminist movement, with anger and hostility. Whenever I tried to point out the problem, I was made the problem. And these are people who I really considered to be allies and friends, and people who I was committed to a cause with them. And I was deeply devastated deeply devastated you know I I would say don't believe any like um suggestion that oh well she hates white people I've been trying to talk to white people about race for the majority of my life and unfortunately it came to a position where I was like wow to protect my soul I'm going to have to stop doing this Mm. (laughs) um and one thing that I think when that blog post went out um it really showed me something quite intense which is that I thought it was just me Mm. and then when people started to really share it all around the world I realized this wasn't just me this was a specific power dynamic and it was happening globally between those of us who who live in multicultural societies and you know I grew up in a pretty working class background you know I had friends from all sorts of different like countries and cultures including lots of white friends who were working class Mm. and you know I thought we were like this I thought we got it I thought we were you know on the same paid about everything mm. and then when I tried to start talking about racism I was told oh that's actually all in your head Renny mm. um, I've lived in London almost all my life apart from a small time away from university and um, you know it's a super multicultural city and like you, I often feel quite anonymous mm. um, and I really did feel fairly anonymous and I didn't feel like my not being white was ever a problem until I started getting involved in the progressive left and then I was like wow <laughs> these people are racist and they keep saying that they're progressive like what's going on (laughs) like like, wow and by that I meant that like they kept rhetorically trying to minimize that racism even existed and they were committed to this like ideology of essentially colorblindness um, Mm. which uh, I think coming from a background of journalism and I also used to work at an anti-racist think tank, and so like part of my job was to essentially like, collect government data on race inequality. I could see repeatedly like in institutions that we expected to treat us fairly, like employment, education, housing and healthcare, repeatedly um, people who were not white were not on the same footing and were not um, coming out of those institutions with the same uh, opportunities as white people. And um, so there was all this, like, pretty, like, government data, like, and they don't have an agenda, Mm. Um, like, essentially saying, yes, the system continues to be drastically unequal. And then, like, when I tried to keep talking about this with, like, white people who said they were progressive, they were like yeah, but like we're over that now, and we're in a post-racial society, so there's this like huge like fire of a problem in the background, um, but can we just not talk about that, actually? Because mm. the issue is class. Mm. <laughs> which, uh, and again, growing up in a working-class background in Britain, which I think if we are going to compare the classes, probably the most multicultural one. <laughs> mm. I was like, are you sure? I mean, I think it might be both, <laughs> you know? Um, all that to say that uh i think i i would have perhaps gone off and written about something else but i couldn't uh, avoid this like massive fire in my house. Mm, mm. <laughs> I was like gosh like this is really bad and i'm not really seeing it being addressed that much i i better attempt to try and tackle it. Mm. So, you know, the aim of the book was really to try and make the case in uh, many different ways, not just my own personal experience, um, because you know we've all got our own personal experience, but it, sometimes it doesn't quite tally what's, with what's going on in the world. Um, uh, and journalism, some original reporting, um, political theory, because I always used to be interested in reading academic papers back in the day, um, and, and also some historical research. I wanted to bring all of that together to try and essentially illustrate what this structural racism actually looked like.
2: Um, in the last essay, you write that in a conversation with a friend of yours, she made the point that, and she says this, structures are made out of people. When we talk about structural racism, we are talking about the it- intensification of personal prejudice, of groupthink. And I, like, structures are made out of people. I, when I read that, I found that as a very interesting way of looking at it uh, and something that I haven't... I've never looked at it in that way. So I was just wondering if you maybe could elaborate or could just make us... Yeah, just (laughs) elaborate.
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, let's go back to some of that, like, data that I was speaking about in terms of, like institutions that don't actually treat people fairly but we should expect them to Mm. um so in the book i have this like narrative of a hypothetical black boy and this is in my head the best way to like illustrate Mm. a lot of the data around inequality and racial inequality in particular in britain Mm. so at 11 years old when you're leaving small kids' school and, and starting and applied okay. to go to big kids school, so secondary school. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you have to do these exams called the Sats, mm. and mm. Um, like the result of these exams can determine whether or not you'll go to a grammar school um, or a school that isn't a grammar school, right? So like, and the quality, as we know, the type of school that one goes to, secondary school, can really inform whether or not you get into the best university or not. Mm. So like, we have literal government data in Britain that shows that black children who are taking exams at that age, um, when their exams are being marked by their own teachers, they are being marked with lower grades. And that is something that is rectified when somebody who doesn't teach them Mm. marks the papers, Mm. right? Mm. Um, And that's what I mean by like literal structural inequality in the education system. Mm. Again, when it comes to higher education, like university, we have literal government data that shows that black students are less likely to get the highest grades than their white counterparts. And when it comes to um, employment, so if you make it through those two hurdles and you are in a position where you're going out to go and apply for a job, we have literal government data. The Department for Work and Pensions did this like big study in 2009. It was a decade ago, I'm aware, but there hasn't been something that's happened um, on the same scale since. So there isn't anything more recent to compare it to. Mm. Um, They sent out 2000 CVs to jobs in the public and the private sector. And some of the CVs had people's names on that sounded African or Asian, and there were other CVs that sounded white British, but largely these CVs of these hypothetical people had similar qualifications and experience, so everyone was qualified for the job. Um, And the results of this study found that if you had an African or Asian sounding name, you were less likely to be called into a job interview than somebody with a white British-sounding name with similar qualifications and experience to you. Again, you can see literally how there's that that's, that bias exists. Mm. Look, I'm not saying that not that only white people have prejudice, but what I am saying is that white people are far more likely to be in a position of power to inf- to enforce that prejudice conscious or unconscious in a way that literally hinders someone's life chances. And that is what I meant when that's what I say, when I'm talking about that quote from a friend, structures are made out of people. Mm. So I've given you like three examples of structural racism, right. Mm. In literal institutions, which, which like we all kind of need to go to school and like university should be something that we we can all access. Right. And Mm. we all need a job to live in this world and eat. Mm. Um, And we can see that there is literal bias in those systems that are are affecting people who are not white who are trying to move through them like everybody else and, and I think that you can draw either one of two conclusions you can either say well obviously like they're not doing well in those institutions because they're just inherently inferior <laughs> or you can say there's bias in the system mm. and um, I don't think that people who are not white are inferior <laughs> mm. um, I think that there is bias in the system structures are made out of people because I think when we talk about those like big picture stats we can be like oh well you know it's just it all seems a bit abstract it all seems a bit esoteric like there's nothing we can do no mm. there are literal teachers and hr managers who are responsible for those smaller everyday decisions that feed into a bigger picture that literally hinders people's life chances and shuts down their potential mm. and and that's what i mean by structures that are made out of people you know i'm not particularly talking about a, a a racism that's about personal prejudice and nasty names and uh, Liam Neeson going out to try and find someone random to kill (laughs) Um, I'm talking about like the accumulative effect of that personal prejudice in a position, in a system where white people are just more likely to be in a position of power because of the structural racism that exists Um, Mm. and I you know, I write in the book and this isn't an extract that floats about in the internet actually, I think particularly with the schools examples of you know kids applying to secondary school and being undermarked by their own teachers so um i'm not saying there that like every teacher who who is marking papers who and they're marking down a black kid probably not even realizing it um i'm not saying that they're a member of the KKK or the far right, you know, mm. and um, they're like, I hate black children. Mm, I don't mm, actually mm, think mm, that's what's mm, happening mm, there. Mm, I don't. But there's bias that does need to be addressed. Mm. And, and like, I know teachers, like I did an English literature degree. So like a lot of my friends are teachers because um, that's the job that we, off, we go off to do usually. Mm. Um, like these people are not doing this with ill intention and ill malice and yet the bias persists. Mm. And so we have to, prompt some self-reflection of the people who are in those structures if we want to address the bias in the first place.
2: If we're going to, again, go back to Norway, because we're in Norway... We uh, indeed. When it comes to conversations about racism, uh, I've noticed that my opponents or people who don't believe that there's any discrimination or any racism in Norway, a lot of people actually believe that there's none. Uh, for instance, they they often point out to size and history. When I, for instance, say or complain about diversity or the lack of diversity in the public eye or space, uh, I hear from many of my opponents that, oh, but there are only 700,000 people with minority background in Norway. The logic being, if you wear more, you would be more visible in the media, in the culture, in sports, everywhere. Uh, So the responsibility always lies on the minority, people with minority background. And if I... That's the size. And if I say that, uh, for example, I'm very sick of hearing from my friend, who's who's Norwegian-Pakistani, her calling me and talking about how many times... A, like a week, she, people come up to her and ask her where she's from. Uh, and she says, which is an hour away from here. And yet, people still ask, but where are you originally from? And she answers, and they keep asking, keep asking, keep mm-hmm.
1: asking. That's an example of being racialized without your will and without yes. your consent. And probably the people who are asking are like, well, um, don't call me white.
2: <laughs> For example,
1: <laughs> <While> <laughs> constantly saying to her, well, obviously, you don't belong here, though, do yeah, you, you don't, you don't belong here. <laughs>
2: And and like so so when I complain about her, she her uh, experiencing that and when I ask like when are we like we are in 2019 and she still experiences that she still gets alienated even though she is from she is she has born there grew up there everything um, and when I ask when is this going to end like what year do we have to be in before my friend before these kind of experiences stop and, and my friend doesn't experience them, I hear from my opponents that, oh, but the first immigrants came to Norway in the 70s, so give it time. So again, the history. So the opponents often point out to size and history, and I wanted to ask you as an expert, because you come from an a much greater, a bigger, bigger uh, uh, country, and... Like, how many do the minority, people with minority background in Norway have to be, and how, and what year do we have to be in before we can see actual change?
1: Mm, A good question. A good question. Well, um, I have been in the, like, again, incredibly fortunate position of having my work supported from... uh, outside of the UK as far-flung as places as like Australia, New Zealand, Canada. I was in Brazil recently and um, one thing that I, you know, I always reflect on how that original blog post was received, and how people all around the world reached out to me and said, "Thank you for describing this." And I, and I think it's not actually to do with numbers. I think mm. it's to do with white supremacy as a political ideology that has mm. been globalized around the world. Mm. Um, and I say that. Um,
2: but do you, don't you agree on because I, when I think about size or numbers, I think about how many people are speaking out up about these lived experiences. Hmm. Because it's so easy for a majority to say, no, this does not exist, when the minority, when it's always like one or two or three, no way, with not that many. And there's always like the same faces that keep talking about discrimination and racism.
1: I can tell you that like, you know, my book is resonating people with this... In South Africa, Mm. it's resonating with people in Australia and New Zealand, um, indigenous people in particular. And when I was in Brazil, which is a black majority country, over 50 percent of the of the population um, has, you know, some sort of African heritage due to the country's history with slavery. Um, I was received the work was received so warmly and literally like an anti-racist there told me they were like. Renny, we really need your work here in Brazil. Mm. And we need it because, you know, Brazil is a literal black majority country. And yet, like, if you turn on the TV, it looks like Norway. Like, she literally said that. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and I was like, gosh. <laughs> so it's not really to do with numbers. It's to do with um, uh, an, an ideology, I think. It's to do with an ideology. And... Mm. We could like drill down and be like, okay, well, there's X amount of people um, who are racialized as this in this country so if we want proper representation we'd need like 0.4 percent <laughs> um but i actually just like i don't know that's not what i'm mm, I advocating mm, for mm, honestly <laughs> mm. i'm really trying to just like challenge and critique an ideology that att- attempts to try and like um delegitimize the humanity of some <laughs> mm. <laughs> um uh, for the benefit of others that's really all i'm i am interested in. I, i'm less interested in numbers or even really representation, I would just like to see some, like, good... I, I would just like to see, like, the ideology questioned, I suppose. Mm. But, you know, being in Brazil was a real, like, eye-opener for me in terms of... And, you know, Brazil is a, a settler-colonial country, like... Mm. And, and I think that we have to be, like, very aware of, um, you know, the dynamics... The social dynamics of what it means to be racialized basically around the world in um, those of us who live in countries that are white majority, particularly in Europe, you know there was a big big thing going on in Europe a few years ago where like um, colonialism coming out from out of europe like essentially like exported a lot of like ideology uh, around um race theory in particular to essentially attempt to try and justify the oppression of people who are not white Mm. and we can't that stuff doesn't really stop at borders like it it informs i think a lot of our thinking to do with these topics at the moment (laughs) thank you thank you for the claps
2: yeah sister yeah okay last question because we're running out of time a british writer uh wrote in an, uh, a review uh, where she criticised your book for leaving her with open questions. Uh, and one of, her <laughs> one of her questions was, what is the res- responsibility of black people in creating change for ourselves? Without, without also taking responsibility, we are dependent and powerless. What about the numerous positive developments since Windrush? Hmm. and uh, since I haven't, um, uh, I'm not going to say what I personally think about this question, but since I haven't seen, uh, I've tried to find uh, an article showing that you answered this critique, I Hmm. didn't find any, so that's why I wanted to maybe hear what would an answer from you be.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question, and the reason I didn't answer that critique is because that's not really the book I was trying to write. Mm. Um, I was trying to really just do the basics, which was like, hey, everybody, here's my really like big dossier and why structural racism exists. Mm. That's literally all I was trying to do. Mm. And I think that because there hasn't been much like non-American focus, like work around this in general, like I, my work is sometimes like, um, again, you know, I mentioned this earlier, projections and cultural baggage. Like my work is, like people need to manage their expectations on like the answers that I can have <laughs> mm, mm, mm. from one brain and it's not that I'm not interested in the answers to those questions it's just that it wasn't the book that I was trying to write at that time I was mm. really I was really trying to um, make the case for structural racism mm.
2: yes thank you so much for this conversation thank you
0: det var alt vi hade i den här episoden av Moonblood's podcast Om du liker det du hör här så fortell veldig gärna vennene og familie om oss, og om du går in i den poddtjenesten du brukar og gir oss en hyggelig tilbakemelding där så hjälper det oss en hel masse. Musiken, du hör i bakgrunnen eller er av Beglomegg och Obne Meisfjord. Jeg heter Askel Vi høres.